of speaking God, that you reveal your nature, who you are, what you're like. You reveal your will and your purposes to our lives. You don't leave us to wonder or in the dark on these things. You don't leave us to fill in the blanks concerning all of this, but you speak to us. And we thank you that you are a speaking God. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice through the book of Malachi tonight, and that you would give us ears to hear in a way that is proportionate to um, the privilege of being able to hear your voice. And so speak to us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good evening. Hmm. Malachi chapter 1, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and tonight we continue in the book of Malachi, last book of the Old Testament. As we noticed last time, Malachi constitutes God's final message to the children of Israel. Uh, before a 400-year prophetic silence that would occur uh, between the speaking to the nation of Israel through the prophet Malachi until John the Baptist broke that prophetic silence with the words, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand as the forerunner of Jesus Christ and preparing the way for him in his public ministry and his introduction into human history. The book is very, very uh, exhortive, and it's intended to be exhortive. It's on a par with uh, any of the great exhortive passages within the Bible, because it's intended to awaken God's people at a time in which they are, have fallen asleep to their responsibilities as God's people in the world. But worse than that, they have fallen asleep to uh, the privilege of being God's people, the privilege of knowing Him as God. And this terrible, terrible, indescribably terrible spiritual apathy has come uh, upon their lives. And they are in need of being awakened out of that uh, apathy. And it was going to take exhortation and a loud voice to be able to accomplish that. And so, uh, and so God is capable of, of doing that. So they wouldn't stay in that condition any longer than they already had. Last week, God corrected their uh, doubt of his love for them and uh, their doubt of his love for them in the light of so many blessings uh, that he had given them so many blessings that were a part uh, of their lives, all of the evidences for his love that was apparent to anyone who would be uh, open to it. And so now as we pick things up in verse 6, the uh, correction of the children of Israel and really all of us here today, uh, as, as is necessary, it continues. Chapter 1, verse 6. God spoke to them and he said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to the people, uh, to, to you priests who despise my name. 
Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible, and when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick, is it not evil? And offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord uh, of hosts? And so he confronts them now. He confronts the priests specifically. And we remember its application to us as Christians today. The Bible says that we are priests in this world. We are a kingdom uh, and priests. And so a priest had a twofold function in the Old Testament. His responsibility was to represent God before the people, which is what we do in living a godly life in the world, and then to represent uh, the people before God through intercession and prayer. So the application is, is, is direct and, and it's important. And so he charged the priests uh, that they were guilty of treating him with disrespect and, by, uh, and with despising his name. Now, in verse 6, when he, God charges them with disrespect, he told them that they failed to show God even the respect that a son would show to a father or a servant would show to his master uh, and uh, what was required by the law of Moses. And both the role of the son or the child or the, the servant in that old covenant was to be one where respect was shown to, uh, to that authority. The penalty was very, very severe. If there was a, there was a level of disrespect of the child uh, toward uh, the parents uh, or uh, of the servant toward the master, according to the law of Moses, if there was a failure to give them the, the, the position that they held, uh, the honor and the reverence that, that uh, they were due, then the penalty was severe. And yet the priests here, who claim to represent uh, God within the nation, they're doing that very same thing to him. And so you have to almost be Jewish, uh, living some years ago, and uh, taking the law of Moses seriously, to realize what God is saying here. And he's saying essentially, no one, no son would think of doing to his father. No servant would think of doing to his master. What you do to me and what you openly do to me in disrespecting me uh, in the area of service uh, that is of all of the places in the world intended to be the place where I am honored and I am reverenced and I am respected. And that's how it would have hit them. He confronts the priest with doing what no one else in Jewish culture would have even dreamed of doing uh, to God. And yet that's where they had directed their disrespect uh, to him. It's uh, shocking in terms of how uh, this would have hit them or should have hit them. You notice in verse 6 that he also charged them with despising his name. And that Hebrew word uh, despised, it's translated despised, it means to treat with contempt, uh, to treat uh, as being of little worth. 
So imagine having priests or church leaders whose attitude toward God uh, was one of contempt. Imagine being in a church for our covenant here, being in a church where the leadership in that church considered God to be of little worth. I mean, you, can't, you just can't even get your mind around it. And the idea is why even bother with a church? Why even go through the motions? And he gets to that in just a moment, if that's the attitude toward me. And yet that was the attitude that they had uh, toward him. And with the priests that, as they would have that attitude toward God, considering him to be of little worth, then that was an attitude that wouldn't be very long, an attitude toward God that would then begin to re- uh, represent itself among, among the people. In verse 6 as well, God, then he anticipated the objection of the question that they would pose uh, upon hearing his charge, and they would have asked God to provide evidence to support this charge of disrespect on their part toward him, and God provided them with the proof there in verses 7 and 8. And the first evidence of it is he said that they offered defiled food and offerings on his altar things that were far below the demands of the law of Moses for any sacrifice that was to be offered uh, to the Lord. The second evidence for their disrespect uh, and despising uh, of him is, he said, by their saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And that's what they were declaring concerning the table of the Lord, uh, the site where they would uh, address the sacrifices and do this service on behalf uh, of the people. And so speaking of the offerings that uh, they were allowed to offer to God at the temple, they said that the table of the Lord is contemptible. The word contemptible means to despise, to think lightly of, to think of as having little value. And as an evidence of how little value they placed upon all of this, they offered, as we're told in verse 8, the blind, the lame, and they offered sick animals. And they kept the best of the animals for themselves, and they allowed people to do the same thing as well. Despite the fact, as we've gone through the law of Moses on these Sunday nights, and we've seen how particular and specific the God was about the kind of offering that would be brought to him. These animals were to be without spot. They were to be out without a blemish. You certainly wouldn't bring, bring, imagine under that old covenant as we've been exposed to it going through, bringing a blind animal to the temple and thinking I can offer that to God and that's going to be okay with him. And then imagine the priests who claim to represent God, they accept that blind animal or that sick animal and they offer it to God and they model to the people that this is all that God is really worthy of, is your castaways, what you have left over related to your life and you're free to keep the best of of everything uh, to yourself. And God gave them a reason under the law of Moses for why they were to bring the best to God. Leviticus chapter 22, verse 32. God said, you shall not profane my holy name. You will not make it common. You will not make my name like any other name in the world. 
That's what common means, to make it unholy. But I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. So as an expression of thanks for their redemption and their being freed from the bondage that they experienced in Egypt, all of it a type of our salvation. They had declined in such a way that now that is the value that they placed upon their redemption. The kind of sacrifices that they were bringing. It tells you how disconnected they, they're playing a religious game. They're just playing church. Their mind is so far away from the fact that God really exists and that these things are important uh, to him. And then he challenged them in verse 8 to present these kind of offerings that they were giving to the Lord to their governor and then watch the response of the governor to that public insult. Now remember, all of these offerings that were being offered, they were being done publicly. This is a public humiliation of God by God's people in the world. So he said, I'll tell you what, you take those blind animals and you take those sick animals, take a, ni- take a nice blind animal, take it to your governor, give it to him as a gift, as an expression of how much you appreciate him and see how, good that, how well that goes over for you. And a governor is just a governor. That's just a human being. That's not uh, God at all. And God knew it, it, uh, it, it, that the, the response of a mere govern, governor, if he were treated in, in this way, uh, would be if they were treating him the way that they were treating God. And God knew uh, that they would never accept that offering, that it would be an offense uh, to them. And so for the children of Israel, um, this wasn't a failure uh, in the area of ability. It wasn't a problem of ability for them. They were careful to show respect to their human governors. It was a problem of attitude and choice. They just simply did not choose to show God the respect and the honor that they readily showed to their uh, rulers. And so the application for all of this, and by the way, I'm not scolding anybody tonight. It just happens to be a strong book. Here we have the Christian who treats God in their relationship uh, with him in a way that they would never dream of treating another human being and their relationship with that human being. Treating God in a way that would be considered an insult by even any mere human being. Treating him in a way that we would be embarrassed to treat anyone else. But somehow there's, we have no qualms in treating God the same way. And so we ask ourselves, do I treat other people better than I treat God? Do I... Uh, make time for him as I would make for others? Do I heed his voice in the same way that I heed the voice of other people that are important to me? 
Do I keep my word? Do I keep my commitment to him as I would to others? Do I say thank you to him as I would unfailingly say thank you to another human being? Do I take him into consideration in the decisions within my life? Do I care about how my actions will impact him and his heart and uh, the relationship? Do I show him the honor and the respect that I show to everybody else? Or do we only offer to God what is worthless in our lives, the leftovers in our lives, the things we have no use for, and to do so with the attitude, and it is always with this attitude, this is what I'm willing to give God in my life, and he will just have to accept it. This is what he gets from me, this is what I choose to give him, And it doesn't matter what his word demands, and he'll be happy with what I give him. And it's possible, as the children of Israel teach us, it's possible even for God's people to sink to that low of a view of God and a treatment of God Almighty. And so he'll just have to be happy with my Christian service or my Christian marriage or my obedience or my giving and all of the other areas that that God uh, addresses here in the book of Malachi and rebukes these children of Israel uh, for in the letter. And so it's a a case of where my life is me first, other people second, and God is last. If the truth were made known, I am first, other people are second, and God is a distant third. Rather than what God calls us to do as Christians, and that is for God to be number one and people to be second and then ourselves third. They've completely inverted the entire priorities uh, of a very simple order of priorities in their understanding of God and in their treatment uh, of God. And again, it represents such a low, appallingly low view of God. Do you think about how ugly it would be if this was done by one person to another human being, giving them the leftovers in our life and then with the internal assessment, the, the rationalization, the justification, and for it, we would look at that person and we say, anything is good enough for them. Anything is good enough for them. And what a low view we would have of another human being to say that about another human being. And yet they're saying this very thing uh, about God. That's the attitude that they had toward uh, God in terms of uh, devotional life and prayer and obedience to his command and reverence and respect and public worship at church and diligence in Christian service. I think it's good to remember too as we think about how to apply all of this to our lives as Christians to remember with the the um, the awful, um, the disgraceful offerings that were being offered to the Lord, to realize that this has a direct application to us as Christians as well. Um, the Bible declares that each of us as Christians are a living sacrifice to be holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable service. That is what is to be presented to him, our lives. And so it it applies very directly 
uh, to our lives in that regard. So it's fair to ask myself, what kind of sacrifice am I? Am I blind? Am I lame? Am I sick? Uh, Am I unworthy of God? The sacrifice, the living sacrifice that I am to God in my relationship uh, with him and in my role as a priest. I'll keep the best of my life for myself. I'll only give him the leftovers, what's convenient and it costs me uh, nothing. That's what I'm going to give him. That's all I'll give him and he'll just have to be happy with it. The disrespect of it. And the Lord had a response to that as he lays that out to them. And he then calls upon them in verses uh, 9 and 10 uh, to shut the whole thing down if they're not going to repent. He said, but now entreat God's favor. If you repent, we can correct this. That he, that is God, may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts. Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands for from the rising of the sun Even to its going down, my name shall be great among uh, the Gentiles. And so God calls upon them to repent, or he says, lock it all up. Lock the whole thing up. Lock the temple up. Lock the doors to the temple. Shut everything down. And he asked them point blank as, as leaders there in that, in that covenant. He asked them if he, they really thought that he would bless their church services with his favor and with his presence. And in doing so, reinforce the kind of relationship that they had with God. Why would God want to bless anything, whether it's a church or the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament? Why would he bless anything that is this corrupted with his presence and with his favor if that presence and favor would simply multiply that leaven even further into uh, the, the, uh, the defilement of how he's being Uh, misrepresented or represented uh, among the people and of course he won't do it and he and he didn't do it and he wouldn't do it then and he won't do it now and then he told them that he wouldn't do so and he asked if there was anyone who had enough integrity if there was just one priest among them that would just man up and call the entire thing a sham and lock the doors to the temple and bring an end to all of this hypocrisy. And God says, no worship at all is better than this kind of hypocritical worship that they were offering to him. And how in the world could they ever think that he would accept this? And again, what a tragically low view of God is evident in all of this. And as we'll see in just a moment, that's exactly how God uh, took it. So you've got all of the religious activity going on, but it's just activity. 
There is no, it is a complete disconnect between the physical acts that are being performed and any sense on the part of the priests of being uh, connected with God in, in any way in terms of what they're doing. It's what is, is called a, a, a practical uh, atheism, where a person knows all of these things in their head. Uh, and they even believe all of the things that are in their head related to God. But then they live a life that is no different than an atheist. No different than someone who didn't believe these things or didn't know uh, these kind of things. And that's what they had, had slipped down in. And that practical atheism is a terrible place to end up in the Christian life. And I think without a rebuke like this, uh, a person can end up there and worse than that, end up uh, being very, very comfortable in that place and staying in that place. And so we may know all of the right things about God, say all of the right things about God, but if they don't translate into the practical part of our lives, then the doing and the living of our eyes, God just says, why bother? Repent of it or just shut the whole thing down. Now, in this context, the Lord then prophesies to the children of Israel uh, of the worship of the Gentiles that will, uh, the Gentile world will one day offer to him. Again, verse 11, I uh, creeped into it a little bit. For the, from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. And so in the world, when you, see, uh, when you see in the Bible nations in the Old Testament, it's talking about the Gentile world. The world was made up of nation, the land of Israel, and then the nations, which were the, the Gentiles, the two great divisions of, of mankind. Uh, Christ brings all of those walls down when we become Christians, but the Jew and, and the, the Gentile. And so God tells them, tells the priests there, tells the nation there, that if the Jews would not honor him in the way that he deserved, he will make his name great among uh, the Gentiles, among the Gentile nations. In other words, he says the Gentiles will appreciate uh, what the children of Israel had come now to take uh, take for granted with God. And so he has. One of the great blessings of a trip to Israel, and there are too many blessings of a trip to Israel to even count, but one of the great blessings is to go to all of these different sites. And sometimes you go there and there's hardly anybody there because they're shooting Scud missiles and so no tourists are going there. Um, or sometimes you show up it's sites where uh, the parking is made for six buses and there's 18 buses. So it's just people everywhere. But when you go to Israel, and one of the wonderful things about it is it is like the United Nations. You see people from every nation, you hear every language, you see every uh, uh, culture represented there, all come together to worship the Lord. I mean, the, the Gentiles have been reached. The Gentiles love these things uh, about God, the things that these, this generation of Jews were taking for, for granted. And so it, it, the, the, the awe, the respect that is shown to him. And of course, what happens today, even in the saving of the Gentiles, 
in in this church age as wonderful as it is the way that he describes it here talking about uh, incense offered in his name a pure offering it takes us on into the kingdom age the thousand year reign of christ when he will rule or jesus will rule over the entire world and be loved by jew and and by gentile and so maybe i think this is why uh, sometimes god uh, has to bring a revival into human history just to start all over. Uh, To me, if the Lord isn't going to come back and rapture the church, uh, that would be option one. But option two would be a revival to where the church just slowly, as they did over a hundred years, just slowly begins to hit a place where none of these things impact them uh, any, any longer. And... And then God says, I'm going to start with a whole new group of people that haven't fallen asleep spiritually. And I'm going to give them a fresh new awe for me and the things of me and appreciation of me and the things of me. And we'll just leave this group behind and move forward. And I think it's a part of what he accomplishes in his, his revivals that he, he springs forth in, uh, in the course of church history. The next thing, in, uh, beginning in verse 12, is that they, uh, God charges them with is that they esteemed their service uh, to the Lord to be a weariness. And not only a weariness, but they sneered uh, at it, we're told. Verse 12, but you profane it in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit, its food is contemptible. You say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, and thus you bring an offering. And should I accept this from your hand, says uh, the Lord? And so God rebukes the priests for what they were openly saying about the table of the Lord, their Christian service, and, uh, and they're saying it as if God can't uh, hear what it was that they were saying, and they were openly declaring. Imagine this. Imagine having a pastor or a series, a, a, a group of pastors at a church or elders and, and declaring as they did here, uh, the table of the Lord is defiled. Uh, the service of the Lord is, is uh, defiled, and the idea is that it's polluted. And the reason that the service of the Lord had become polluted under them had nothing to do uh, with God. It was entirely their fault. And so they had this lousy attitude about their service to the Lord, and then that led to sloppy ministry, and then that led to a sloppy attitude about their ministry. It's this vicious cycle. That, that was going on, and it goes on yet today, very, very easily for it to happen, and, and only they could correct it. And it's very easy for some particular area, I've seen it through the years, some particular area of church ministry to become marked by a slothful, irreverent attitude and I'm not talking about this church. I've just seen it. And to have that slothful, irreverent attitude toward Christian service that then affects all of the new servants coming in. And, and it's 11 there. 
You see a young Christian or you see an excited Christian go into that area of the ministry under this kind of person or this particular kind of team and you realize they're doomed in there. They're going to be poisoned. Uh, They're going to be ruined in terms of of Christian uh, ministry. Someone becomes territorial about their area of ministry. They do it, but they complain the whole time that they're doing everything that they're doing. And and there's the need then for someone to stand up and call for change as Malachi was doing here. It's a terrible leaven even in a secular workplace to have someone who grumbles on the job, who calls, uh, you know, the, uh, all of this a, 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 a weariness and then it spreads and it affects the entire team. I... Um, I can't imagine what some of you, where you work uh, in life, God bless you, for some of you work in very, very political environments. And I'm not talking about running for election. It's where people get their position, they get their territory, they hold on to it, and then somebody is either over it or is a part of it, and they just ruin the entire thing. And it's all the office politics. It's the politics of the institution. I remember when I worked for the phone company as a cable splicer, there was a guy that was probably the most egregious example that I had hit at that point in in my life, and uh, he was a cable splicer as well. Very, very talented. I mean, he, he knew his stuff so well, uh, better than any of us. But he complained and grumbled about every uh, job he was ever given. He would take the work orders and just snatch them off of the desk as he walked out the door in a huff. And it affected the entire team. Uh, And it made coming to work and being exposed to him a very, very unpleasant experience. It, it, It produced an atmosphere there. And when a Christian has a low view of Christian ministry... It's not going to be long before they voice it. And, uh, and then an entire area of ministry can collapse under the weight of their uh, uh, very poor and worse than poor attitude. And then pretty soon, you know there's a problem and here's how it starts to work. Everybody starts to leave that area of ministry. They won't say why. They're just getting out for their lives. They just know they don't want to be infected by whoever is leading this particular thing and they start to scramble and begin to volunteer in uh, healthier sections of the church that that they are uh, a, a part of. And then it does terrible, terrible damage until somebody has to stand up and clean up that area of, of the church or that area of the ministry which is what Malachi is endeavoring to do, uh, to do here. They declared that its fruit or its food is contemptible there in verse 12, and uh, perhaps a complaint that uh, the Lord got the best part of the animals that were being sacrificed uh, un- unto, uh, unto him while the priest got uh, the leftovers. I mean, what a horrible uh, attitude. I mean, that God would use any of us in his his service and then complain about our cutout of things. I mean, it's just uh, ri- ridiculous. And, uh, 
The fact that he shares any portion with us at all is a, a cause for joy and, and reverence. And then amazingly in verse 13, they called their service to God a weariness. Think about the affront that would have been and, and where it exists today, the affront that that would be to God. It's a privilege to serve God. It's not a weariness. Think about the eternal meaning and significance that serving God brings into our lives. And it's not necessarily doesn't happen at a church. We just know what God has called us to do and to be in this world, what he wants us to be spending our life in for his glory, and then the eternal significance of that, that when I die and when I go into heaven, that my life has been used significantly by God as an influence for the kingdom of God. You take Christian service away and all of that is gone, or the viewing of my life is Christian service. And then it's just Eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we die. And I don't know what the equivalent of that today is. Eat, drink, and bear, be merry. And um, uh, uh, watch 10 million movies before you die. Or whatever the entertainment or where people are burying themselves in, in, in here uh, today. And so it's a privilege to serve the Lord. It is important to realize that the work of the priest wasn't an easy task. That they had to slay the animals, they had to skin them, they had to gut them, they had to butcher them. A physically demanding uh, job, and, and they, they spoke evil of it. But here's, here's what um, eliminates their excuse, at least one reason for the elimination of their excuse for doing this, and that is that prior to them, generations of priests had done all that they were doing with a sense of awe. But they were connected with the sacrifices. They recognized that this is one human being, a fellow human being, an expression of their worship toward God, their relationship toward God, their awe of God. And then they handled their ministries with that sense of awe as a, as a, a, a result of that. And they were humbled by uh, uh, the fact that God would use them to help people express their love to God uh, in, in this way. And there's something was wrong with them, the priests, something wrong with their attitude and, the, and God is saying, it, it's something wrong with you and not with the work and not with your calling. And concerning any Christian who becomes bored with their Christian service, to come and to view it as a chore or weariness, or there's, uh, is to realize that there's nothing wrong with the work or the calling. If we ever find ourselves in, this, in that place, this is a weariness, this is tedious to me uh, now, uh, then the, uh, we've lost sight of the majesty of God, the greatness of God, and the sense of privilege that is involved with serving Him in, in any way. And the loss of a sense of privilege in the Christian service uh, and, and the sense of privilege of being able to serve God in any way is, and for our lives to have the eternal significance that comes with that, that's a catastrophic loss. And so God speaks to them and he says, this is something you have to repent of. This is an attitude that you must 
uh, repent of. And, and then to pray to God, ask for forgiveness for uh, what has become lax in terms of the relationship with him that would land me in this kind of a place and ask to be freshly filled with the Holy Spirit and, and return to uh, when there was that zeal and that sense of, of gratitude. It is not unusual for God's servants, for a Christian, to become tired in the ministry. That's a reality. It's an ongoing reality. But we should never grow tired of the ministry. Growing tired in the ministry is a physical problem. And it's addressed with rest and good nutrition, building some margins back into a life where the margins have been burnt up. And, and, and that gets fixed there. But here in terms of, uh, of uh, it, it becoming uh, where somebody reaches a place where they become tired of the ministry, that's a spiritual problem and it has to be corrected spiritually with fresh vision and, uh, of God and a fresh understanding of God. And then shockingly in verse 13, you may say, I don't know if I can take any more shock, but that's the idea of the book of Malachi. They sneered at their service to God. They sneered at the privilege of helping people express their love and their gratitude and their adoration toward God in the giving of, of their sacrifices. I don't think there's hardly any expression on a human face that is more distasteful or ugly or off-putting than a sneer. You ever had anybody sneer at you? I hope you haven't. It is, it is a communication of contempt. It, it, is a, it is one of the ugliest things that one human being can do to another uh, human being. It's, it is to communicate, this person is not worth my time. And then to treat them dismissively, to treat their ideas dismissively. I mean, it, it, to do this to another human being is a person that has really lost control in their life. And yet they're doing this now to God and growing comfortable uh, in, in that. And then God charges them further in verse 13 of bringing the stolen, the lame, and the sick as an offering to him. Imagine stealing an animal from your neighbor so that you can bring that to the temple to offer to God instead of one of your animals. You think someone like that is missing something in their understanding of God and a, a respect and a reverence for God? Of course, I mean, it's just, it's crazy where, uh, where they are. And so you notice as they were doing, one of their animals is becoming lame or sick and they're thinking, I got to offer that one to the Lord right away before it dies. And the priest should have rejected all of these offerings. That was their responsibility, but they didn't do it. And, and, uh, and, and as these were bringing to, uh, by the people to God, and they didn't do it because they didn't care. 
And all of this had lost any kind of meaning to them at all. It didn't represent any reality in their lives. And so uh, they had completely lost sight of God and all that this was intended uh, to, uh, to represent. No zeal for his glory. No zeal for his majesty, for his great name, for who he is. And he challenged him to think about it there at the end of verse 13. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Did they really think that he would accept this? And then in verse 14, he says, But cursed be the deceiver who has a male in his flock and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. Now, in the Old Testament law, when you'd made a vow to God, you offered a male sacrifice unless you didn't have a male animal to sacrifice then he would accept a female here you have someone who has a male in his flock but he won't offer the male uh, to uh, to uh, the Lord and, and so uh, he challenges them uh, related uh, to this as he, as he warned them about taking and giving him something uh, that less than what he uh, requires and something that a person has in their very possession. And when a person will not offer to God what they have, it means it's an indication of the fact that they no longer view these blessings as coming from God. They don't fear him. They don't fear him drying those blessings up in any way uh, in, in their, their lives. And so they look at it and they say, these things belong, uh, belong to me and I'm going to keep the best for myself. And God calls this kind of person a deceiver, giving the appearance of offering the very best thing that they could at the temple that they owned, coming to the temple pretending they didn't own a male animal for sacrifice and thus offering something uh, lesser and uh, because their best was hidden out of sight of everybody that it was at the temple, but not out of the sight of God who had given them all of the blessings that the deceiver, as he describes them here, he knew all of the blessings he had brought into this, this person's uh, life. And of course, all of it is unworthy of the Lord. And so he says to them, For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. To me, this is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible where God is forced to stand up among his people at his temple, at his church, and then declare concerning himself, I am a great king. And the reason he must declare it of himself is because nobody else was doing so. And they ought to have been doing it. And here God is forced to declare concerning himself what his people should always know about him and always be declaring about him both in word and in deed. And it's so sad that he has to uh, ascribe his worth to himself, to them, 
because they weren't even remotely close enough to being able to say these words about him, much less to live a life that would represent this kind of view uh, of him. And so he describes himself as a great king, says uh, the Lord of hosts, king over the heaven and the earth, king over every inch of this world, king over the entire angelic uh, realm. And they went on and on uh, uh, about uh, their privileged positions of of leading uh, people in the worship of God as if none of this were true, as if God was not a great king, as if he was not the Lord uh, of, of hosts. And then he says, my name is to be feared among Uh, the nations among the Gentiles. It wasn't feared, it wasn't reverenced among uh, his people. And uh, if it wasn't reverenced among his people, then how in the world would it ever be reverenced among the laws? And here we have on open display an appalling apathy toward God and toward Christian service. And God declares it to be in no uncertain terms, just absolutely unworthy of him, that it's a a complete scandal in heaven, what they had grown accustomed to and thought was good enough for God. And I think it's also a classic case of the curse of familiarity, becoming so familiar with the things of God that they no longer impact us the way that they uh, once did. And nobody wants anything done for them if it's done by people who can't do it with the right attitude. If somebody comes to your house to do something for you and they complain the entire time, you just say, I don't need it. I don't need it. It is not worth what the attitude that you bring here to do a good thing, the good thing is not worth that at all. Just leave me alone and don't do it. And that's what God was speaking to the children of Israel about their uh, complaining concerning him and complaining about uh, the the weariness of of their service and how weary they had become uh, of it uh, directed toward the Lord. And so Malachi says to him, in effect, either do it with the right attitude or don't do it at all. Return to a reverence for God a recognition that you are serving a great king who is the Lord of hosts. And either get that figured out between you and him and your service to him, or just cease doing what you're doing. Because he's worthy of our best. And he's worthy of that kind of respect. And so tonight we just want to let this search our hearts just a little bit, whether our attitude has slipped at all into apathy and these particular areas in in our lives. And so I speak this, and I don't look at our church and say, you know, we have some particular problem in in any of these, these areas that we've looked at tonight. But individually, we want to look at our own lives. We want to let God search us in any way that he wants to. And concerning these things, any slippage in, in any way, And I think that one of the things that happens so often with an exhortive text or an exhortive section of the body is it is usually all of the wrong people that take to heart the exhortation. (laughs) They're already doing fine. 
in their Christian service and in their respect and adoration toward uh, God, but they'll listen to something like this and they'll say, where's a cat of nine tails that I can whip myself over this? That's not the point of going through this passage. If we look at our lives and we say, no, my attitude toward God and my attitude toward Christian service is what he calls on them to have, then this passage is a wonderful encouragement and reminder to you, don't you move from where you are. No matter who else does or doesn't have this attitude toward God and toward service toward him, it's an affirmation and an encouragement to you to stay there. But then in our lives, if there is a place where we've slipped in any of these areas and uh, uh, treating him as I would never treat another human being, uh, living my life as me first and others second and God a distant third, and then thinking in my mind, I would never say it, but I live it, and and thinking to myself, uh, that's good enough for him, that's all he's going to get from me, and he'll just have to accept that. Of course, we don't want that in, in our lives. And then to see this appalling uh, apathy toward God and Christian service. And so he is a great king, and it's an important reminder. And his name is to be respected among the nations. So if the worship team will come forward now, we'll spend a few minutes closing our service up in worship and just allowing uh, some time to meditate upon all of this or something else under the direction of the Holy Spirit. Let's, let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we pray that you would use our time in your word tonight to um, just burn away any part of our Christian life, any part of our relationship with you, our service, in which we have uh, fallen asleep in terms of the seriousness of it and in terms of how you view it and what you're worthy of. We pray you would also use this time in your word tonight as a preventative measure in our lives to keep us from falling asleep and becoming a part of any slumbering mass that may exist within your body and among your people. We love you. We are grateful for the miracle you've done in our lives. And you really are a great king. And it is our privilege to worship you. We are so thankful for that. We could have only hoped and dreamed that a God like you would have been who we would find at the end of our search and of you drawing us to yourself. We are grateful to know you, grateful to serve you, grateful to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word tonight this time spent in worship of you this evening. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.